Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. Thank you so much for listening in today as we kick off our summer teaching series, Jesus Stories. Before we get there, I just wanted to give you a reminder and an update of things going on in the life of our community. First of all, there's one more week to donate funds or uniforms for our friends at Jefferson Traditional Middle School. Uniforms are an essential part of the Jefferson landscape as it helps to level the playing field among students and it helps create a distraction-free environment for all at Jefferson. We want to help stock the spare uniform closet, which can help students as they lose, wear out, or outgrow their uniforms. You can give monetarily by heading to the link in the show notes below. And a fun update, there's a generous wholesaler that's helping us make sure that your money goes as far as it can for these students. Or if you'd prefer, you can go out and buy new uniforms and drop them off at our location in Studebaker 112 on Sunday. Physical uniforms must be black, gray, white, or blue polos. The blue can be light, royal, or navy and khaki, black, and blue slacks. Bring in physical uniforms ranging from sizes youth extra small to adult 2XL, and we'll make sure that it gets to Jefferson before the school year begins. Thank you for your generosity in being good neighbors to the students at Jefferson. This summer, we have the opportunity to hear from friends of South Bend City Church during our Jesus Stories teaching series. However, we will interrupt that series with a Sabbath Sunday on August 20th. Here at South Bend City Church, there are four mantras that guide our way of life together as a church, and one of those mantras is fields, not factories. It calls us to remember that life with God works a little bit like life in the field, which includes seasons of rest. So we're taking a Sabbath break in August with no gatherings and no podcasts on August 20th. We encourage you to enter into some practice of rest, whatever that looks like for you. And our offices will also be closed from August 14th through the 20th to give our staff the opportunity to engage in this practice as well. Finally, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your home, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to keep the lights on, keep the podcast rolling, create safe spaces for all who call SBCC home, and so much more. So thank you. If you want to give, you can head down in the show notes below, and it'll lead you directly to our website. All right, so like I said, this week we kicked off a series of teachings where we interact with peculiar moments in the life of Jesus from the Gospels, cleverly titled Jesus Stories. We're asking teachers to take us into the moment with Jesus where his words and actions are working on them in the hope that they can work on us too. This week we had an added layer as we celebrated the release of the first book from our lead pastor, Jason Miller, called When the World Breaks. But first, Beth Graybill took a minute to set the stage and interview Jason to give insight into the making and the heart of the book. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's jump in with Beth, Jason, and the rest of our community now. Hey, Hey. thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Jay, we're really excited to celebrate you and hear from you about this book. So we're gonna, Jay and I are gonna do a little uh, interview here, and then he's actually gonna do a teaching for us, um, and then we'll have a time to just pray for Jay and really send him out over the next few weeks as he launches into a book tour. Yeah. Um, before we jump into the interview, you know, I, I mentioned earlier how I'm sort of at the fringe of the publishing world, and so one of the very first things I do when I get a new book, besides actually read the book, is I flip open the inside cover, because here's where the gold is, guys. Like, <laughs> the inside cover, there are, there's a whole team of people who work really hard to synthesize a book's message in a very concise way, and I just want you all to hear what Jay's publisher wrote about him. Um, they said... Lyrically written, theologically rich, and supremely accessible, When the World Breaks reveals an unexpected way to look at these familiar verses, giving readers hope that God is with them in their suffering and helping them become the kind of people who can put things back together. Jay, what was that like for you to hear those words, lyrically written, theologically rich, and supremely accessible? Yeah, you know, it's funny, those paragraphs... Some of what's in those paragraphs comes from writing I had done. Those three phrases didn't. Um, my, like, my heart like, leapt when I read lyrically written um, because music's my first love, and yep. I like to think of preaching as a song. So for them to grab that um, meant a lot to me. Theologically rich, like I think theology is wonderful, and I think our inheritance is this long story that people of faith have been telling um, and then supremely accessible because this shouldn't be like, this should be for everyone, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I remember reading those and like I literally like, got emotional and I thought, I don't know if I hit those targets, but I certainly 
aspire to that when I'm preaching or when I'm writing, and they matter so much to me. And this was earlier in the process. I actually wrote each of those phrases on a little individual sticky note, on a post-it note, and put them on my computer monitor. And to this day, they're still there. Because what I'm reaching for, like with every sermon, with every word written, I hope, is, is those things. So really very meaningful to me. Yeah, in fact, Jay and I met a little earlier this week to kind of talk through briefly, like, you know, what he wanted to share this morning and um, a few questions. And I was like, who wrote these words? Yeah. Did you write this? Yeah. You know, because I was like, that takes a lot of confidence and courage. Yeah. Look how um, lyrical and right? theologically rich my book <laughs> <Right>? is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I didn't, gosh, I didn't do that. Uh, yeah. What a beautiful reflection of, of your actual book message. Uh, thank you. So, Jay, tell us a little bit about why this book and why now. Yeah, um, why this book? Uh, so it's about the Beatitudes, the eight blessings that Jesus gives in Matthew 5. And those blessings first started working on me about uh, 13 years ago when I was on my first uh, trip over to learn about what's happening with the conflict with Israelis and Palestinians. And that was a, a really harrowing experience for me where I spent um, days on end um, hearing the most devastating kinds of stories of violence and division, military occupation, um, injustice. And it wrecked me so deeply that I was at a despairing point and it was right there at, at that point in the trip that I kind of bumped into these Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I was unaware of them before that, but it's the first time I started hearing them deeply in my own life. Um, and then have just found over and over again that um, when the world breaks, whether it's at the big like systemic geopolitical level or whether it's at the personal level, like your world breaks, I, like I keep coming back to them and they keep helping me walk through those experiences. Um, and then why now, I think, so when I came home from that trip in 2010, they were working on me, and actually 13 years ago, I took out the theme, by the way, sticky notes. I took out one of those big sticky notes that's like the size of a poster, like for meetings, and wrote When the World Breaks, again, like 13 years ago, I just put it on the wall in my dining room, and it stayed there until I moved out of that house uh, five years ago, I think. Um, there was like a gravity to that that I just couldn't shake and I wanted to hold on to. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't gotten the book written and then 2020 comes along and the pandemic happens and uh, our politics are just seething, right? Um, we watched the devastating murder of George Floyd uh, on video um, and I literally have written on the wall when the world breaks and there comes a point where you start to feel unfaithful or disobedient if you don't realize that maybe now's the time right. um, to try to figure out how to serve this message. Yeah. So actual time writing the book, like how long did it take you? Yeah. Like once I turned to it, uh, two or three years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Writing a book is no joke. And so for anyone in this community who has ventured down that road, it takes a lot of time. And it's not something you fill in the crevices of your life, right? It's yeah, you, you can't do it in 20 minutes here or there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You have to be really intentional. Jay, throughout your book, um, I thought this was actually a really fun style of yours. You have quite a few disclaimers, mm -hmm. probably more than I've read in the average book. Yeah. And you all, when I, when I am talking about disclaimers, I mean like every once in a while he'll have like a phrase or a sentence and then an asterisk and then he's like explaining it in the bottom. What do you mean? So um, just tell me like, why so many disclaimers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, First of all, I, like I, I just know that when pastors write books, different pastors bring different energies and attitudes and postures to that work. Mm -hmm. And when people read books by past, pastors, um, they don't always know what your posture is. Um, most of this book feels above my pay grade. We're mm -hmm. talking about really hard things and hopeful things and beautiful things. And yeah. we're talking about mysteries that I think live at the heart of reality. And I wouldn't want to give the mistaken impression that I think I've got that all figured out. Um, the book also, like, because we're talking about the world breaking, you know, it could have become a book specifically about the work of uh, social change and systemic justice, which is really important work. But my book's not actually primarily about that because I'm, I'm not really an expert in those things. I'd rather point you to other people who are. Mm -hmm. um, the book o overlaps with and intersects with a lot of like mental health issues but I'm not a, I'm not a qualified uh, teacher or practitioner in those spaces, but I don't want to ignore those things. I just, yeah. I'm not trying to say that faith is like a substitute for like taking your meds. I think we need both. Um, so throughout the book, I'm trying to say like this book, it's not this and it's not that, but here's the thing the book is. 
And mostly it's me trying to say, this is my best understanding of my experience of how these have worked on me and a few others I've learned from. And I want to offer that without you thinking that I'm trying to discount all these other really important things. I'm just trying to let the book do its part and then also celebrate all the other things that help us walk when the world breaks. Yeah, one thing I've really appreciated about you, I've heard you say this a few times, when it comes to expertise in the world, you often say like, you're the ex we are the expert of our own lives, yeah, that's right. right? And so yeah. we might have an expertise in another area, but at the end of the day, that's where our expertise yeah, lies yeah, yeah, in our right. own lives. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jay, give us a little bit of the inside baseball. And I know like talking about this at first, you're like, I'm not going to talk about the process, but um, I thought, gosh, there's probably about 20 to 30 people in this room who have actually authored books, um, whether it's in the Notre, Notre Dame community or outside of that community. And so give us a little bit of inside baseball, knowing that like maybe at one point you actually had a different subtitle or the publishing industry, those kinds of things. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I, I really wanted to go traditional publishing on this. Yeah. Um, there's really good reasons to not do that. Self-publishing is an amazing way to offer something to the world right now. Um, to me, one, I really wanted to work with a really high-quality editor because I wanted the book to be the best version of it. I thought I could benefit from that. Um, I also, from what I can tell, like, um, books like this that are about faith and theology, a lot of readers, one of the first questions would be like, are you credible, right? Right. And I am not saying that because something is published by a traditional publisher, it's credible theologically. Uh, but I think a lot of readers, it helps to kind of see that. So, so I wanted to go that route, um, which is pretty cumbersome. You, you have to have a, you, you can't get published without a literary agent, so you have to work with an agent, and that take, that's kind of your first round of work. And then you develop a book proposal, which is like this 40-page document that explains the motivation for the book and the outline for the book and the reason you're the person to write this book and the audience for the book. And you kind of make a case for the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to shop that to publishers, and then you work through all of that. And then you get a publisher, and then you write the book. And then after all of that, the marketing team at the publisher comes along, and they're like, oh, we don't think we can sell that subtitle. And I'm like, I've been living with this subtitle for like five years. That's like telling me you don't like my baby's first name. Like, how dare you, sir, you know? Um, so we fought and fought and fought about it, and ultimately, um, I had to tap. Uh, my, my agent was like, hey, man, you're going to have to lose this one. And so it's funny, the subtitle's fine. I literally don't remember what it is exactly. The Surprising Hope and Subversive Promises in the Teachings of Jesus. It's a mouth salad, you know. Um, my subtitle, and I'm not even, I actually thought about like getting stickers made, slapping them on the book <laughs> when I'm selling it. But I don't think my publisher would approve of that. I don't think so. My subtitle is uh, Suffering, Hope, and the Paradoxes that Put Us Back Together. Hmm. And that's really what the, yeah, right? Thank you. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's about reading the Beatitudes as paradoxes. They're, I, think, I don't think they're straightforward directions. I don't right. think he's saying, do this and get blessed. I think there's something more mysterious going on, and I wanted a title that could um, kind of hint at that. Uh, so what we have is, is good, but that's all part of the process of working with other people. And at the end of the day, I think most of us are better off most of the time working with other people yeah. and letting them um, help you shape your ideas. So here we are. Absolutely. Jay, tell us how we can support you and both celebrate you as you launch into five weeks of literally all over the world, yeah. um, including Belfast, Ireland, and a few places here in the U.S. How we can support you and celebrate you and your journey. Thank you for asking. It's such a generous question, and a number of you have um, asked it recently. Uh, my first response is um, ask not what you can do for the book. Ask what the book can do for you. Because I really mean that. Like the, the heart of writing this is, is not that a bunch of people would support the book. The, the, the first hope is that the book would support you. That you would find it to be like a really good companion for you. I hope that you feel less alone if you read this book. I hope you feel a deeper sense of bravery if you read this book. I hope you find Jesus actually being the one who kind of walks you through the hardest moments of your life and then leads you into your own power in the world for good. So that's, my first hope is that. But since you asked, if you'd like to support the book, um, I should also clarify, um, you know, we, you have not walked into a cult whose purpose is to prop up my book sales or to celebrate the lead pastor. This is a church, for God's sake, literally. Um, and we're trying to be really mindful about that. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we've built a whole process with our board and our staff team and trying to make sure that there's some clear guardrails and some transparency and accountability here. 
uh, from everything from the fact that like church finances aren't involved in the book and all that, right? That's important. Um, so today for one day only, uh, you can buy it at South and City Church if you would like to. Uh, it'll be for sale out there. Um, uh, pre-orders really matter. It doesn't come out till August 1st, so you guys are getting it early. And um, in book retail, this is back to the inside baseball um, retail, the, the market's really flooded with books, right? Um, especially new authors, and with new authors, retailers often have very little to go on to figure out, of all of these new authors, who are the few that we should sort of amplify to our, to our audience, right? And so pre-orders is one of the very few indicators that retailers have that tell them this book might matter in the world. So if you want to pre-order, super helpful. Um, once the book comes out, reviews make a really big difference. Uh, on Amazon and Goodreads in particular. And so um, you can do Goodreads right now if you've already read the book. If you've got an early copy, uh, you can put a review on Amazon starting August 1st once you read the book and want to let the world know what you think. Um, I've heard, I'm going to interject. I've heard a few of you walk in and be like, oh, there's books here. I already pre-ordered mine. And I would just say... Um, Maybe it's a both and for you, right? Maybe you support Jay this morning by picking up a book and there are books available for um, free as well. Um, yeah, let me say about yeah. that too. So, um, so if you'd like a book, but uh, the price point is uh, tricky for Hardcovers are expensive, by they the way. They are. Um, here's the deal. I got a discount code just for this morning, uh, just for South and City Church. Uh, I, can't do the, I can't afford to do this elsewhere. Um, but here's what you do. You just walk up to Jake who's helping me sell books this morning and you say, hey, Jake, Jay owes me one. Which is true, right? Uh, because you're my home church. This is our family. This is our community here, and I wouldn't get to do the, this the way I'm doing yeah. it without the support of this community. So I genuinely mean that. So today, if you want to grab one, please grab one. It would be my great joy to know that you got one, whether you could afford it or not. And it would break my heart if I found out that you wanted one, but you didn't get one uh, because of the price point. So that's certainly available today. Yeah, yeah. So grabbing a book today um, is just as much of a support, but if you pre-ordered, that's a huge help, as Jay was saying as well. Um, there's also a podcast out there yeah. that talks about how the church leadership got to the place of putting some parameters that's around right. this process. Can you yeah, tell so us if, about that? If, if you go back um, a few months in the podcast feed, you'll see that when we first announced the book, uh, we released a podcast episode. It's myself, Matt Grable, our executive pastor, and Ken Meyer from our board. And we just wanted to give you all some transparency and visibility about the way that we're thinking about not just me and my book, right? But the, the bigger question is when members of our staff and leadership have things to put out into the world, can we create some consistent policies and frameworks that aren't afraid of celebrating it, but that do so in a way that has integrity and transparency around all of that. So check out the podcast if you want to learn more about that. Yeah. Hey, speaking of celebrating, yeah. how can we celebrate you? Come to the party. Uh, Thursday night, we're throwing a book release party right here in South Bend. Uh, you all are very deeply welcomed and invited. You have to get a ticket. They're free. But please get a ticket because we need to know how many people are coming. A Hammer and Quill Bar will be there offering drinks for purchase. Uh, it's just a chance to say thank you to, to you for supporting it and to celebrate the heart of the book. We've got um, some other little goodies in stores, some um, special artifacts that will be available at the party to give away that relate to the book. Um, but just go to, this feels so gross to me, go to jasonadammiller.com <laughs> slash, slash tour and then uh, look for the Thursday night listing um, click through to the Eventbrite, please get a ticket. And then the other reason for that is that the location and the parking for the event is kind of tricky. And if you don't get a ticket, I can't email you with details. And you're going to want those details before you come Thursday night. But we would love to have you uh, anytime you want to show up between 7 and 10 Thursday night. Absolutely. So we can celebrate and support Jay by purchasing a book, by praying for him as he comes to mind, by showing up at the book release party, yeah. and really just being a part of community for yeah. you in these yeah. next few weeks. So, Jay, you are about to launch into a few weeks of spending time in um, kindred places with other churches who have walked alongside our faith community over these last few years, and you are going to share your book message, but we get to be the first to hear it this morning. Yeah. So yeah. my last question for you is, are you ready? I think so. Ready? We'll find out. Yeah, <laughs> are yeah. you guys ready? It's too late to if hear not, Jay's right? book message. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you're you, Beth. Up. Yeah, yeah. Really grateful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anybody a fan of the Black Liturgy's Instagram account? Some of you know this account? I hope you do. That's really, really wonderful. Uh, created by uh, uh, Cole Arthur Riley. Um, it re offers prayers and reflections sort of birthed in her experience as a black woman that uh, help all of us, I think, pray and reflect our way through the world that we're living in right now. So if you're not a fan or you're not a follower, highly recommend it. 
but because I'm a fan and a follower, I took special note when Cole Arthur Riley wrote an article in The Atlantic Magazine. And the article was her wrestling with how, in a world with so many different like, broken places, with so much trauma and tumult in the world that we're living in right now, she was wrestling with the pressure that she feels as a public figure to have like, an opinion, to have something to say about every traumatic event that we see in the news. And she says that really when these really hard things happen, it's important that you carve out some, some other space where you're not just figuring out what to say to other people about it. She says in the article that we need to tend to the quiet, where we at last hear the sound of our own interior world, the pain or numbness, the guilt, the nothing at all. And that last phrase is the one that stopped me in my tracks. To tend to the nothing, the emptiness inside that so many of us feel um, when these really big and hard things happen. And I was thinking as I read that from her, how I, I keep learning about that in my life. I sort of had this flood of memories of that experience of the nothing at all within. I thought, for example, like I was just mentioning and talking with Beth about my first trip to Israel and Palestine and days on end sitting with these really hard stories of violence and occupation and injustice. And the, the first thing I experienced that I had a hard time naming was the nothing. It's like you, you turn to that place within you, you might call it the soul, the place where you would hope to find hope or joy or power or overflowing, and instead it just feels like there's nothing there, like it's been robbed or vacated. And then I realized like that's certainly not the only time I've felt that. Another pronounced experience in my life where the first thing I felt was the nothing at all, like the emptiness, was years ago. I was coming out of high school and on my way to this uh, youth event at Taylor University with some friends, a big Christian conference event for high schoolers. And going into that event, I specifically had in mind the reason I'm going to this is I want to feel what Paul calls in the New Testament the fullness of God. In fact, Paul prays for the church. He says, I pray that you would be filled with the fullness of God. And I spent so many days feeling kind of empty, and I didn't like the way that felt, and I didn't like the way I acted when I was uncomfortable with that feeling. And so I was like looking for a kind of fullness, and so I go to this conference seeking it. And then what happens is during a concert at one night at the event, the lead singer of the band is telling a story about how a fan of theirs had written them a letter and the fan was telling them that she had faced some really painful childhood traumas and that the music they had written was helping her face those things. And then like a, like a Pandora's box that opened up a film projector in my brain, this flood of um, really, really painful childhood memories came crashing into my mind from a place of sort of hidden and suppressed awareness. And it just shut me down. And the thing it felt like was that I had been praying for fullness and instead like an explosion had gone off within and my soul had been robbed, like vacated left empty. I remember um, walking around the next few days literally afraid to make eye contact with people because I had this bizarre sort of irrational fear that if somebody looked me in the eyes, they would figure out there was nothing inside me. But I wasn't really a human walking around. It was just kind of a shell, you know? And she names it, and it was so helpful for me that she named it. And when I heard her call it the nothing at all, I also thought about the way that Jesus actually begins his great sermon naming specifically this. Now, before I show you the part where he names it, I want to back up and set up Matthew 5 for you because Matthew 5 is an important place in the Gospels. So uh, Matthew is one of the four biographies of Jesus, one of the four places where we read about his life, his teachings, his healings, his death, and his resurrection. And Matthew's a Jewish writer writing for a Jewish audience, which means he's sort of uh, reaching into Jewish ideas and memories to make a point about who Jesus is and what he's doing. So I won't like, bore you with all the exegetical details here, but by the time you get to Matthew 5, Matthew has already done a bunch of things for his audience for them to think of Jesus in a very specific way. He's reaching back to their memory of a liberating leader named Moses who early in their history had helped bring them out of their slavery and into freedom and into their power and into a way of life with God that was good. And it's Moses who goes up on a mountain and receives the law from God, which is meant to be a gift to them to help them live in the liberated way that God has called them to. So you get to Matthew 5, and Matthew's been doing all these things to help his readers think of Jesus as the new Moses on the mountain, giving you the liberating word of God and a way of life in the world. And then you read in Matthew 5 at the beginning, there, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. So all these original readers hearing the story are on the edge of their seat, like, what's the new Moses going to say to liberate us? 
What's he going to say to make us free? What's he going to give us to lead us in the good life? And then if the expectations aren't built up enough quite yet, the next couple of words that he says just further them because the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the English translation are these, blessed are. Now, I don't know how you feel about the word blessed. I know it can have a lot of baggage with it, right? Um, Hashtag blessed is like a joke these days, right? But of course, he wasn't speaking in English and Matthew wasn't writing in English. So let me help you understand how this word might be powerful for these original readers. So Jesus is probably speaking in Aramaic, and he might have said something like ashray. And if you go back in the Hebrew scriptures of his own people and you look for the occurrences of that word, what you find out is that ashray, blessed for those people, means something like a divine insurance policy against suffering. In other words, the blessed ones are the ones who live virtuously, and because they live virtuously, God's going to protect them. God's going to put a hedge of protection around them. You're going to walk in a way that is straight and narrow, and life's going to be good because of that. So for that original voice speaking in that language, you're going to hear a kind of divine insurance policy against suffering. But then Matthew's not actually writing the gospel in that ancient language that was spoken by Jesus. Matthew's writing the gospel in ancient Greek because that's the language of trade for all the people in that day. So the actual text in the original says makarios. And that Greek word, makarios, means something like, according to one philosopher, Dallas Willard, uh, the blissful existence of the gods. This is the Greeks imagining that their deities are up there in the clouds, floating above the troubles of this earth. The deities are in global first class with the lay flat seats and the free drinks. You know what I'm saying? And the rest of us, humanity, the hoi polloi, are back in economy class, dealing with like broken air conditioning and like no legroom, Right? The, the blissful existence of the gods. So whether you're reading the text in the Greek or you're hearing Jesus speak it in his language, you can just sense all of this expectation. The new Moses is up on the mountaintop bringing the new word from God to liberate us and help us live the good life. We're going to be told about this uh, divine suffering-free kind of life. And then what he says next is so troubling and so confusing that you shouldn't try to make sense of it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That you are in the heart of the divine life when you find yourself emptied, broken, and poured out. This is why I like the word paradox for these blessings. And this is why so much of what you probably heard taught from these blessings isn't working. Because if you come to these looking for straightforward instructions for pious people like tidy little formulas for how to secure for yourself the kind of blessing that God wants to give you. It's not meant to work that way. But it's, it's easy if you bring those expectations to a religious text to try to force it in that direction. I don't think it's what we have here. I think we have an absurdity or a paradox. And paradox in theological speak is often the language that we use to speak of uh, mystery. Not something that we can't know, but something that runs so deep in reality that our language at best can touch the edge of it. And then all that's left after language does all that it can do is for us to live in the mystery of it together. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to point us toward when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That somehow in a way that um, defies the logic in our heads, you can trust that in the emptying, the pouring out, the broken open, the robbed, the vacated part of you, that somehow uh, you are there in the terrain of heaven. Uh, The first four blessings all kind of have this spirit to them. This is what they look like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, like those moments I've described for you, whether in the West Bank with my Palestinian friends or Uh, in the psych war that I checked myself into four and a half years later as I kept working out the detail on those traumatic events, somehow he calls that blessed. He says, blessed are those who, who mourn, who have lost something, whether it's a dream or a relationship or a good arrangement in life or the actual loss of someone you loved, that blessing uh, had already been walking with me, but then when my friend Alex died by suicide in 2019, And I literally found myself walking his wife down the aisle for their funeral and then giving his eulogy. Um, That blessing took on a kind of gravity in my life that it still carries. 
When Jesus blesses the meek, uh, there are different readings of this word meek. It's a little slippery sometimes. One reading is that it describes people who've been bridled by the systems or circumstances around them. What that might mean is that like, you have your power, you have your strength, but it does you no good. And to be honest, I mean, I've had my experiences of that, but it's absolute fact, it's just objective as can be, that like, I live in a world whose systems and circumstances are more likely to welcome my power than other kinds of people's power from time to time. And so I've learned more about this, I think, from friends. Like my friend Angela, a black woman with a PhD uh, right here at Notre Dame who has stories to tell about how sometimes that world doesn't know what to do with her um, because it kind of defies the categories they have for someone like her, right? For Meek, I think of uh, this person that I met in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon just a few years ago. Uh, he and his family were refugees from the war in Syria, and they had landed in the Bekaa Valley, which lies just on the other side of a mountain range that separates Lebanon from Syria. And I went there uh, to learn about the work that was being done on behalf of these refugees. I think I, I would have told myself I went there with no biases, no prejudices. But when I sat in the tent with a family of refugees, I discovered just how deep some of those biases ran because we're there in this tented encampment um, with tarps overhead and two by fours holding them up and whole families living there. And we walk into the home of this Syrian gentleman and his family who welcomed us there. And immediately I, I was surprised. And it was my surprise that indicted my own biases because I was surprised that he spoke perfect English. And I was surprised that his 12-year-old daughter brought us out tea as if we were at the Queen's Palace with such... Um, care and precision. I was surprised to find out that he was a surgeon with a flourishing medical practice back in Syria. Uh, and then even as I'm catching up with the strength of this man's life, with the skill of this man's life, with the stature of this man, as I'm catching up with it, then I hear meekness expressed because after he tells us the basics of his family's story, he begins to describe the barrel bombs that were being dropped uh, in his city. These are indiscriminate weapons of violence. They have no regard for anything except destruction of human lives in the worst possible way. And these barrel bombs are being dropped out of helicopters on their apartment building where they live. And there are a number of floors above the floor where they lived, but each new barrel bomb would decimate another floor or two. And this strong, wise, kind, brave man with incredible skill and capacity to care for his family, he began to tremble as he said, when you can no longer protect your children, it's time to leave. And in that moment, I like, discovered the meekness of a man who, in spite of all of his strength and wisdom and skill, finds himself in a circumstance where those things do him no good and he has to leave. When Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I know righteousness is a, a complicated word for a lot of us today. Um, it's every bit as appropriate to translate that word justice. But perhaps to go further, you could say that Jesus is blessing all of us who hear a screaming inside that says things shouldn't be this way. And sometimes the things that we're talking about are personal, they are within our lives or our personal relationships, and sometimes the things that shouldn't be this way are big, systemic, political, or global, but he has a blessing for those who hear the screaming inside, and I've felt that in a bunch of different circumstances, but perhaps the one that stands out most for me is the more than a decade where I walked with like a really um, very dear, dear person in my life through the throes of addiction and self-destruction, going weeks or months at a time wondering if he was alive or dead, and then wondering how he would ever find his way out of that. And um, almost not being able to live with the pain of that discontent inside that says, things should not be this way uh, because I love this person and I want them to be whole. So anyway, Jesus gives these blessings for the worst kinds of things, and we're now all a little confused, right? Like, is this the divine suffering-free life? Is this um, the good life that God is going to lead us into? And then the next few blessings take a turn that begins to speak of the possibilities of what he's doing. So after, like, blessing us in these impossible experiences of suffering that we carry with us, he then begins to bless a very particular way of being in the world. He has a blessing for the merciful. Uh, the reason for that, by the way, is they will be shown mercy, which is a little catch-22 for him, right? It's like uh, the only gift that you get is the reminder that you also are in need of mercy. I think here he describes people who, as we walk through a world with brokenness and injustice, he describes people who remember that there's a difference between justice and vengeance. 
And vengeance can never heal the world. And there has to be a current of mercy undergirding all of our work in the world. And without creating false equivalencies between acts of injustice and the victims of those things, without doing that, somehow he calls us to remember that we share the same frayed moral fabric with everyone. And our movement toward justice and forgiveness is compelled by that subversive remembrance. He blesses the pure in heart. He says they will see God. And I take that right now in the moment we are living in to be a, an urgently needed indictment against the cynicism that has crept in for almost all of us. I mean, it, it is vitally important that we name what is broken and we call out what is evil. But I fear that we have developed an endless capacity to see what is broken and evil and that we are losing the capacity to see God in the world, to see light even in dark corners. But here he has a blessing for people who aren't naive, and I'm not saying he wants you to sweep things under the rug, but somehow he has a blessing for the people who have developed the capacity to see God in even the darkest corners. And then he has a blessing for the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers, not the ones who maintain the status quo, but the peacemakers. And here I, I picture kind of geographically, like physically, he has a blessing for the people who have found themselves perhaps having been raised up and having been located in, within one group, one faction, one tribe. You've got your own crew with the wagons circled as we all double down in our trenches and get ready for the fight. And the peacemakers are the ones who bravely feel themselves compelled to leave behind that group identity, to leave behind that factional corner that we've been camping out and to move toward others in other places so that we could build bridges of actual belonging and right relationship. And I think what he knows is that, first of all, when, when you approach those groups that you're not a part of to try to make real peace, you're going to be seen as an enemy by the groups that you approach. But perhaps the worst thing, the more dangerous thing, the more harrowing thing that you might experience is that the group that you left behind will call you a traitor. And there may not be any category of person for whom we have more contempt than a traitor. But the blessing Jesus gives for the peacemakers is that they will be called children of God. And I've heard many say very beautifully, very poetically, that the reason he calls them children of God is that they bear a family resemblance to the Father. I love that. I don't think that's what's happening here. <laughs> I mean, I think it's true. I ju it's just not how I hear this blessing working. Here's how I hear it working. I think he knows you'll be called a child of God because nobody else will claim you. <laughs> but... That actually becomes the deepest reward. Because what kind of greater freedom would, they be, would there be than to walk through the world knowing that you carry with you a belonging with the divine? I mean, that can't be taken from you. That can't abandon you. That can't be robbed of you. Like, to have that with you leads you to a kind of freedom, a way of love, a way of power in the world that will make peace because you're no longer um, bowing down to that primal, primitive, violent place in us that wants nothing more than to know who's in and who's out. So he gives these blessings for this beautiful, powerful, surprising way of being in the world. And what I've begun to discover and keep learning about and seeing not just in my life but in other lives too is that this movement of beauty and real power in the world is only made possible by trusting those first strange blessings. Because it turns out that people who do the brave work of sitting with the suffering within them are the people who can then walk bravely in the world and do these beautiful things. And people who don't do the brave work of sitting with the suffering within them are going to keep reacting, keep lashing out, keep transmitting back into the world the pain that they are running from rather than allowing those hard things to be transformed within them so that they give back something different. We are allowing pain and violence and fear and betrayal to ricochet around everywhere. It's like a pinball machine. It just keeps bouncing around and it comes at me and because I'm afraid of what it does in me, I just give it back to you. And it can feel like when we suffer that all we have is the pain and so therefore all we have to give back is the pain. But what Jesus is saying with these first few blessings is when you suffer, the pain isn't all you have. When you feel devastatingly emptied from within, you actually have more than that. Even though if you don't feel it, even if you don't sense it, you have the kingdom of God within you. 
When you turn toward mourning, you perhaps are doing the very thing that will help you discover that the good that you loved, that you feel like you lost, has not been lost, it's only been transformed. When you turn toward that sometimes humiliating experience of meekness, when systems or circumstances around you try to keep you down, you might discover that it was never their possession in the first place, the things that they've kept from you, and that the real, the truly good will be your inheritance. When you ache for things to be made right within you or around you, that might become a compass, that aching feeling. If you don't, if you don't choose to fill that belly with fake things, with faux justice, if you let that gnawing hunger drive you, it'll become a compass and it will lead you toward an actual feast of peace. And then from those discoveries, not just beliefs, not just theories, but from those discoveries in our lives, we then become the kind of people who move out into the world with mercy, who, who, who move out into the world seeing the divine in the dark corners, who move out into the world making peace. And then I'll tell you what happens next. You get persecuted. This is the last blessing Jesus gives. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus says persecuted, I don't think he's talking about American Christians who were offended because somebody said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. <laughs> the word uh, means pursuit, actually. The root word here means that you, you are being pursued by evil. Now, if evil is unlimited, evil can go after everyone, and the fact that it's coming for you doesn't mean that much. But I don't think evil is unlimited. I think evil is a limited resource. And the reason I think that is because when evil brought everything it had against Jesus, when evil unloaded its entire arsenal against him, when he found um, religion and state power conspiring to end him, they put him in a grave, and three days later, after evil unloaded everything it had, he finds himself resurrected again, as if to say that when evil unloads everything it has, love still has more to say. Love still has more power to raise him up. Love has not been exhausted, even though evil has been. So when evil comes after you, call it a compliment. It appears that its limited resources, its limited ammunition has been directed at you because your life, your power, your voice, your story, your presence has become a high value target. Something about who you are becoming has become so disruptive to the disorder that the disorder has to take you out. And I've actually come to believe that's the best kind of hope. Not hope like a feeling that you choose or an optimistic perspective on life, but I mean the kind of hope that lives in your bones because you have discovered, you have felt, you have lived the reality that your life is being gra grafted into, drawn into healing in the world. That there's a current of life and light that's actually flowing through you in spite of the darkness that's come at you. Something better than that is coming out of you. And when you find that happening, you can hold your head high because you'll know that there's more to the story than the breaking of the world. You'll have been there firsthand for the healing of the world. And that's the best kind of hope that I know. Uh, the other thing I keep discovering is that I actually um, trust Jesus when he gives these blessings because I see him trusting these blessings. If you read the Gospels with these blessings in mind, you see a person who uh, smoked what he was selling, who seems to have actually rooted his own life in trusting these blessings. There's a, a strange kind of mysterious reflection on this Christ mystery in the, in the book of Philippians where this poem says that Christ being in very nature God, and then most translations say something like he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but the word is a little weirder in the Greek. It says he emptied himself. Christ being in very nature God emptied himself of God. And I don't know what to do with that metaphysically or logically, but experientially, I am learning to trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, hey, that poverty you feel within you, it's okay. You don't have to cover it up, defend yourself, build a wall around your soul, hide it, ignore it. You can sit with it because I've been there too. When he blesses those who mourn, I see in Jesus somebody who moves more quickly toward grieving than I often do. For me, it's much easier to sit back from the pain of the world and judge it. But I see Jesus living close to it and weeping for it, whether he weeps for his friend Lazarus, even though he knows he's going to raise him up just a moment later, or whether he weeps, weeps over Jerusalem, the city, because they do not know the things that make for peace. I see a man who lives uh, deeply acquainted with mourning and loss. I see in Jesus, uh, when his own body is flung on that cross, 
a man who knows what it's like for a system or circumstances to set them up against you, to decide that they want to rob you of your power and put you to an end. He knows what that feels like. I see in Jesus an aching for things to be made right, whether he is weeping or whether he's flipping tables. I see in Jesus somebody who lives with that hunger and lets it fuel him rather than ignoring it or trying to feed himself on cheap substitutes for the justice that he longs for. I see the mercy in Jesus who prays, forgive them. They know not what they do, even while they nail him to a cross. I see, um, bizarrely, Jesus is willing to see God in like every kind of person. Have you noticed that? I mean, he, he will... He will give home to no prejudices in his ministry. And it's almost like whenever he sees somebody who might be looked on with scorn by the group that he's a part of, he makes a show out of finding God in that person, right? Um, The peacemaking that you see in Jesus, we could spend hours and hours and hours reflecting on. Whether it's Paul's reflection that somehow in him Jew and Gentile have been made one, or whether it's Luke 4 when he... um, disturbs his friends in the synagogue and tells them that it's the other group that's going to have the work of God manifest in their world with miracles performed for Gentiles, and then they drag him to a cliff. I mean, this is a man who knows what it's like to make peace and to find himself abandoned because of it, and yet he seems to know that voice that calls him beloved son, and he wants us to know the same. And then, of course, persecution is something that's quite familiar for him, but he knows the power that it indicates Uh, There's that joy that G.K. Chesterton describes in Jesus, that mirth, that perhaps even while he was facing the hardest things, there was something that he hid within his heart, which was the, almost the cosmic joke. (laughs) That, yeah, these systems and circumstances can come against you and the world can break again and again, but we know something about the deeper wholeness that was never threatened by these things, that invites us to live from it and to give it to the world. And so, um, so I've uh, written a book about it, and I hope um, it makes you feel less alone on the hardest days. I hope uh, in it you hear Jesus like wooing you, kind of calling you gently to face the hardest things that you are carrying with you. Not because he wants it to be hard, but because he knows there are particular revelations waiting for you in the hardest places. And that as long as we run from them, we are robbing ourselves of those gifts. And I hope you hear Jesus inviting you into the power of your life. Not a reactive power, not a power to break things in return, but the power of your life to put things back together with him. And I hope uh, that somehow that translates to hope when the world breaks, whether it's a world breaking in the headlines or a world breaking in your life. Um, If you've been around South and City Church for a little while, most of this has probably sounded familiar. Uh, like either a rerun or something else. Um, and that's because it is. Like we've been having this conversation for quite a while as a church. And um, that's another reason I feel so deeply grateful uh, to be a part of this community. Uh, and we thought we would take a moment with um, these blessings that Jesus gives through a song that we've already sung today, actually. It's a song that's become a bit of a, an anthem for South and City Church. And I think for many of the reasons I've just described, like it resonates really deeply. And so uh, Mariah is going to take a moment to lead us back into that. If you're able, would you stand and join us as we sing this together? And blessed are the ones who do not bury All the broken pieces of their heart And blessed are the tears of all the
standing, I'm going to ask Karen, who's our director of kids ministry, to come up. She's going to offer a prayer over Jason and his book this morning. Um, After that, we're going to have a chance to sing a prayer over him. Uh, But Karen, thank you for, for leading us in this moment today. Hi. Let's bow our heads. Loving God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this coming month and that we'll learn from these stories of Jesus with some amazing teachers. Thank you for Jason. Thank you for his courage and intelligence and creativity and kindness in putting this beautiful book together for us. Jason is one who does not leave anyone the same as when he met them. And thank you for his unwillingness to leave us there as is where we are, but to be an encourager and an inspiration to find the healing and hope that comes from you. Through his vulnerability and openness, he shares with us in our broken spaces, and we're now recipients of this collection of blessings. As Jason travels, sharing this book around the globe, go before him. May his experiences and gift of storytelling speak gently yet boldly to those needing to find their way to the other side of brokenness. May his words help lay you and your love on their hearts so that it can seep down into the broken places. May they feel seen. May they feel loved. May they feel you. May the words he's written show a path that encourages everyone to seek the hidden opportunities in mystery and paradox. And may your grace and your peace be with Jason. Amen. So we thought it would be appropriate for us to sing a benediction over Jason today. And then he'll come and offer one for us. You might recognize the words of this song, but maybe you've never heard it in this song form. So whether this is a prayer that you pray along with us, whether you sing the song or whether you speak sing the song, it's totally up to you. Um, But we're going to sing these familiar words over Jason today.
Uh, so we thought maybe I would uh, share this uh, blessing that comes from the end of the book with you all. When the world breaks and you find that you've been robbed in spirit, when you look to that place within where you would hope to find hope and joy and power and peace and instead find a poverty, May you know that you are in the terrain of heaven because the soul is not a closed system. We are conduits of God. And the open-heartedness that allowed you to be robbed as you suffered is the very disposition that will allow you to be filled with the divine. When the world breaks and you suffer great loss, whether it's the loss of hope or the loss of a dream or the loss of a beautiful arrangement or the actual loss of someone you love, may you mourn bravely and in naming the void where the gift once stood, may you discover the eyes of your soul dilated, your inner being flooded with light, for nothing good can ever be lost in God. And the glory we yearn for is still with us. When the world breaks and you find your strength bridled, either by circumstance or systems, when you find yourself unable to take for yourself the things you need, may you trust that an open hand is all that's needed to receive, for you will inherit everything, as nothing real was ever the possession of those who have bridled you in the first place. When the world breaks and you find yourself aching for things to be made right, either within you or around you, whether the fractures have happened in your life or have come against your life, may you trust the sacred pangs of hunger. May you know how holy your parched palate is, and rather than allowing your thirst to be slaked by false promises and faux justice, may your ache become a compass that leads you to a feast of peace. If you've been wronged and are finally given the rightful power of the victim to exact revenge, may you remember that you were forged from the same moral fabric as the one who violated you. And without creating a false equivalence between victims and those who have perpetrated their suffering, May we remember our own need for mercy. If you find your heart darkened by cynicism, may you see past the illusion that corruption is the final word. May your own shadows be the proving ground for a more perceptive vision. And may the eyes of your heart be enlightened 
giving you an uncommon capacity to see God, to see light in even the darkest corners of our world. If you find yourself called out into the borderlands, into the no man's land beyond your own faction, forsaking group belonging, and if in those borderlands you find yourself desperately alone, feared by your enemies and called a traitor by your own, may you discover that you have become a child of God, claimed by the divine. May you discover a cosmic and irrevocable sense of belonging as you walk the lonely path of peace. If you find yourself persecuted, made a target by the powers of disorder that are breaking the world, may you know that you have become a threat to the disorder. You have become a conduit of the divine. You have become an agent of love. So when the world breaks and it tries to break us, may we trust that we too will be raised up. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.